1 through 11. Hear these words. So Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert uh, to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, oh, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, people don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for your own scriptures say this. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, don't put the, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you'll just bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. We will go that far. Such a fascinating story, (laughs) isn't it? Um, Don't get distracted by all this talk about devils and angels, right? Because that can sort of make us step back and go, what? That's weird. And we think about... We think about temptation, which is something that we all bump up against all the time. And sometimes we can think of it as, as specific moments in time where there's like, we could go this way and the devil's saying, yeah, do this. And then we've got the angel on the other shoulder and says, no, go, go do this. You know the right way. And so sometimes we think, of, we think of temptation as like these specific moments in time. And those things are very real and those things happen all the time. But, but also... Uh, temptation can be something that's bigger and broader and something that we, we might not even be aware of because it's, it's, it's sort of the water in which we swim. It's the culture in which we live. And sometimes it's good for us to take a sort of step back and, and look at things in a broader perspective and we realize, oh my goodness, it, it might not just be moments in time. It might be like a lot of the time. So hopefully over the course of what I'm going to do in the next uh, 20 minutes or so is get at some of that stuff. Um, and hopefully that comes through. Anyway, so here's the deal. Last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of the season of Lent. Were you aware of this? Yes. So that makes today, Sunday, the first Sunday of the season of Lent. Now, around this time, it's always good for us to remind ourselves what the season of Lent is all about. Uh, The word Lent comes from the Latin word Lenten, which means spring, So you can think of the season of Lent as a kind of season for spring cleaning. And I've mentioned this before. Here's the deal. None of us knows exactly how or when it happens, but we all get to the point in our lives where we get pretty comfortable. Like we know that there are things in our lives that we're like, eh, it's not quite right. But nobody, as long as nobody else knows about it, it's fine. But here's the problem with these things in our lives. Like we know that there are things not right in our lives. They're they're not quite perfect. And we know about them. And because we know about them, we understand that these things actually affect the lives of others if we're paying attention. And that knowledge then can uh, sort of affect our self-worth. They can sort of give us a feeling of alienation, a feeling of loneliness, almost as if we're, we're a little bit lost. And if we really start to think about it, then we get to the point in our lives where we, we say to ourselves, okay, enough. Enough. 
I got to do something about these things, right? Now, for most of us, our New Year's resolutions are like in the rearview mirror a long time ago, like seven days after we start them. So they're long forgotten. This is what I love about the season of Lent. It's like a second chance. It's like a new opportunity. It's like a, a second win because this is the season of self-examination, a time where we sort of look at our own lives and we gain some some self-awareness about where we are and where it is we're headed, right? It's time, it's time to take a look at ourselves and recognize that we're not necessarily living up to our best selves. That's what this whole season about. Lent is a time for change. Lent is a time for transformation. Lent is a time of intentional renewal. Lent, it's a time where we We really allow the grace and the forgiveness of God to work in us and through us, to renew us and recreate us, to make us new. So Lent always begins with the same story. Uh, And in fact, this is the third time I've taught on this specific story for Matthew, Matthew chapter four, one through 11 in the last seven years. This is the third time. And Luke has a story that's almost exactly the same, and I've done that two times. So this is the same story for the fifth time here in this place. <laughs> that makes it challenging for me. It's kind of like, uh, like Christmas again, like the same story. You've got to figure out, okay, how are we going to teach this again and again and again? But I love it because there's so many layers here. It's this weird little story. This is a weird little story where Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, and uh, at the end of those 40 days, the evil one shows up, and he gives him three tests, uh, three temptations for him to consider. So at this point in the story of Jesus, he's just beginning. Like, this is the beginning of things. He's 30 years old. It's that time in life where most of us, it's like the pre-midlife crisis time. We're not like quite at midlife crisis time. We're really freaking out about where our lives are headed. But when we reach about the age of 30, we're like, do I really want to do this? Is this really what I've signed up for? So it's that time in life where we start thinking about the future and start thinking about where we're headed. That's where he's at. And here's the deal. Within the story of Jesus, he's just come out of this powerful experience of self-awareness when his cousin John baptized him. In, uh, in the River Jordan. And he comes out of that experience with this powerful self-awareness that, oh my goodness, God showed up in that place. And God spoke. And the spirit descended like a dove. And he realized that God said, this is my beloved. Right? The one, I, I love this one in whom I am well pleased. And he realizes that, oh my goodness, he now has a new mission ahead of him. Like his life is now profoundly changed. Things are going to be different. And it's at that point that the spirit leads him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The spirit leads him there to be tempted by the devil. Now, here's the thing about Matthew's telling of the Jesus story. It's very Jewish. And in all sorts of different ways, uh, he he, uh, sort of wants to connect the story of Jesus to the story of humanity in general, and also to Israel in particular. And so all over Matthew's telling of the Jesus story, there are sort of these echoes of the Old Testament that reflect that. And this is one of those points in the story of Jesus, as Matthew tells it. So let's think about how does this connect to the story of humanity in general? 
Uh, think about Adam and Eve. So that's the story of the beginning of humanity in general, right? The story of Adam and Eve sort of goes like this. God creates Adam and Eve, he blesses them, and he puts them in the garden, and he gives them a mission, right? So they're blessed, and they're given a mission to take care of all of creation and make sure all of life has the opportunity to flourish. What happens next? What, what comes into their lives? The serpent, the snake, God. And what does the snake do? The snake tempts them, right? And they screw it all up, right? From there. Well, Jesus has this powerful feeling, this powerful experience, right? He's been blessed by the Father, and he's been given a new mission. Then what happens? The devil shows up, right? So he's connecting this story with the story of humanity in general, right? Now, what about the story of Israel? Uh, so the story of Israel is how many years did they spend wandering around in the desert? Does anybody know? 40 years. And so Jesus now spends 40 days in the wilderness, sort of echoing the 40 days of, or the 40 years of Israel spent in the wilderness. So it's almost as if Jesus is like Marty McFly from Back to the Future. Hang with me here. So... Marty McFly is a 1980s, mid-1980s teenager, right? And he's got this sort of weak, bumbling fool of a dad and a mom who's, uh, who's got a problem with alcohol addiction, right? Uh, and then that, all, that, the, the whole trajectory of their lives seemed to take this turn towards where they now are at present because of something that happened way back in the past when this bully Biff sort of humiliated Marty's dad. That affected the whole trajectory of their lives. Well, then, as the movie goes on, he finds himself accidentally transported back to 1955. And Marty McFly sort of arranges events so that instead of Biff humiliating his father, his father humiliates Biff. And that then changes the whole trajectory of their lives. And then he goes back to the future. And what does he find out? Oh, everything's different. His dad is strong and wealthy. And his mom is, no, is sober and beautiful. And Biff's out in the driveway washing the car like a bumbling fool. Are you with me? So he went back, confronted the bully, changed the whole trajectory of their lives. Well, Jesus didn't go back into the past. He confronted the bully in the present. <laughs> the devil's the bully. Are you with me? And Matthew's saying this changes the whole trajectory for all of humanity and Israel in particular. You'll never watch that movie the same way again. You're welcome. And so that's sort of what Matthew is, is doing here. He's changing the trajectory of everything. So now let's take a few moments and let's walk through these three temptations uh, one at a time. So he's been there for 40 days and for 40 nights. He hasn't eaten the entire time. So he's super hungry. He's famished. He's at his weak point. He's at that point where when you haven't had food for a while that your brain gets all mushy and you can't think straight. Are you with me? We miss one meal and we get there. We like get grumpy and mad and angry. at every. We get hangry immediately. Well, Jesus has been there for 40 days and 40 nights with no food. And the devil comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Like he got this power. Turn these stones into bread. Now, like I said before, it seems to me like there are all sorts of different layers uh, going on here. But I think this temptation, at least in part, is about the temptation to cheat the system, 
to sort of take the easy way to what we think will be fulfillment. He's tempted to cheat the system, to take the easy way to what we think will be fulfillment. This, this temptation, I think this is really important. This temptation implies that God's loved ones shouldn't be hungry. That, that hunger isn't an important part of what it means to be a human being. Like, this temptation, in tempting Jesus to turn stones into bread, the evil one is tempting him to cheat his way to fulfillment, to eat what isn't meant to be eaten, to consume what isn't meant to consume and ultimately satisfies. What happens if he turns that bread, those rocks into bread and consumes them? What happens three hours later? He's hungry again. So it doesn't ultimately fulfill. Are you with me? Isn't this interesting? I think we do this all the time. I think we're, I think we're always looking for ways to cheat the system, to cheat the system to go after what we think will actually fulfill us. It won't take us very long to think of a few examples. At least it didn't take me. We could probably have a discussion for the rest of the half hour we have together and, and, and come up with lots of things. But things like this, like we want a better position at work or we want a bigger p- paycheck. And so we do whatever it takes in order to get there, including stepping on people to get there on our way up the ladder. We think that having the latest, biggest, greatest, largest thing, whatever that thing is, will ultimately bring fulfillment. And so we'll go into really, we'll go into great debt in order to get there. Yes, I'm taking Financial Peace University and I'm thinking a lot about this stuff, but we do this all the time, right? We think that that will bring us fulfillment. And so we go into this great big mountain of debt in order to get there, right? And after we get the thing that we went into debt to get, a day or two later, we're like, oh, that didn't fulfill me like I thought it would. We have this deep longing for connection. And so we spend a crazy, crazy amount of time on social media and we build our sort of online lives and we spend all this time watching other people build their online lives, but it never fully satisfies because it's not the real embodied connection that we've been created for. We spend our days walking around with this deep sense that there's got to be way more to life than this. And so we try to fill our lives with thrilling things, right? Newer vehicles, alcohol, pornography, and all kinds of things, and endless mind-numbing entertainment. And we have to keep going back to those things again and again and again and again and again, because what? They never truly satisfy. So we try to, we try to cheat the system. And I think we do this all the time. But what if we asked ourselves a very important question? What if hunger... What if hunger is an important part of what it means to be a human being? What if we actually stopped and rested in our hunger? What if we, what if we paid attention to our hunger? What if, we, what, if we, what if we tried to figure out what's behind the hunger that we have? Maybe if we do these things, we'll, we'll discover that we can be hungry and yet still be alive. Maybe we'll discover that that we can live with less, give more generously, and be more fully alive than ever before. Maybe if we rested in our hunger, we'll discover that, that we can hurt and hope at the very same time. 
maybe we'll discover, if we pay attention to our hunger, that leaning into the divine is the thing that brings lasting fulfillment. It is written, Jesus said, people don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's worth thinking about. Well, when that didn't work, the devil came back at Jesus and tried a second thing. He's like, I'm going to ramp things up a little bit. If you are the son of God, he said, took him up to the highest point in the temple. And he said, throw yourselves down, throw yourself down. And guess what? Your own scriptures tell you that God will send his angels to save you. Oh, it will be a great grand spectacle. And people will go, wow. Again, probably multiple layers here. But this might be the temptation to sort of dazzle the crowds, to, to entertain, to go big in order to win people over. Right? This one's tempting too, isn't it? Because here's the deal. We love the big. We love the large. We love the spectacular. We love to dazzle. We love to be dazzled. We love to impress. We love to be impressed. We, we love impressive things because it sort of helps us to escape the real realities of life. And this is certainly tempting for churches to do. This is really tempting because we live in an entertainment world, right? So it's, tempting, it's, attempt, it's tempting for us to, to do our best to, to really put on a show, to entertain in order to draw people in. But Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. I find that interesting. What does that mean? What does he mean by that? Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Well, I think, I think it means, at least in part, something like this. That isn't how God created the world. If you just look at the world, this isn't how God created things to be. Jesus isn't interested in dazzling the crowds. Even if you read the stories about Jesus in the Bible, there are all sorts of places where he does these things that we call miracles. They're miraculous, right? But really, when you think about it, he doesn't do it for everybody. He does it only for a few people. There aren't very many of those things recorded in these books about Jesus in the Bible. It's a very small amount of things. So Jesus doesn't seem to be, to be interested in dazzling the crowds and diverting attention away from the realities of life. He wants us, I think, to go more deeply into the everyday realities of life because there's way more going on here than we're used to seeing. Most of the really great things in this life are really small things really tiny things. You don't have millions and billions of friends. You've got a small group of people you know who really love you and who can count on you and who you can count on. Just to really think about this. You walk around breathing and your lungs are doing their work and you never think about it. It's this really small thing, but it's keeping you alive. Your heart, you never think about it beating but it keeps on going, keeps on ticking. It's a small thing. You don't ever think about it, but it keeps you alive. It's the really small things in life that really, really matter. It's why Jesus spent so much time talking about the kingdom of God and how it's like a seed buried in the ground, like the smallest of your seeds. And then when it grows, it grows into the largest of garden plants and it gives shade to the birds. It gives grace. It's this small thing and it becomes, oh my goodness. It's like yeast being put in dough and it gives shape to the dough that becomes bread. It's like a cup of cold water to somebody who really needs it. It's why we do this tiny little thing week after week after week after week, coming here every Sunday, 
gathering for worship, rubbing shoulders with real live human beings in the flesh and blood. Because we know over time, it's a small thing, but over time, as we get into this rhythm, it shapes us and molds us into the kind of people that we know the divine wants us to be. We pay attention to his glory week after week after week after week, and somehow, some way, we capture it, and we're able to reflect that glory out into the world. Here's the last one. The evil one says this, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you them all. If you just worship me. I think this one, this one's probably a little bit easier to see. Layered too, for sure. But this is, this is the temptation to grasp after power. This is the temptation to, to grasp after power. It would have been such an ego trip for Jesus, wouldn't it? Oh my goodness, all the kingdoms of the world, such an ego trip. Power, it's so tempting. It's so alluring. Because we think that if we gain control, we think that if we just grab the power, we can make this world the way we think this world ought to be. We think... We can legislate it. We think then we can enforce those laws. We can enforce right, correct behavior. We can, we can enforce correct morality. The problem is it doesn't seem to be the way that God works. Right? At least not in the Bible. It doesn't seem the, I mean, you think about Jesus. He, he wasn't born into Caesar's family. He was born into a, poor family from Nazareth in a little town called Bethlehem. Like if, if this were God's way of doing things, it would have been a Caesar. It would have made way more sense, at least to our minds. This doesn't seem to be the way that God works. Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he did what? Emptied himself and became a human being in the form of a slave. That's the way God seems to work, right? God woos, God invites, God welcomes, God gives, God provides, God blesses. God doesn't force. God doesn't coerce. It's not the way of Jesus, period. Just read the stories about him in the Bible. In the Bible, anytime the people of God align themselves with the powers that be in the world, with empire, it doesn't work well. Never, never ends well. Just read about it in the Bible. Don't trust my word for it. Don't take my word for it. Just read about it. Throughout history, whenever the people of God have aligned themselves with power and grasped after power, it has never ended well ever. Just quick history lesson. We'll teach you that. The people of God always end up sacrificing things like integrity, honesty, decency, and most of the fruits of the Spirit. We sacrifice those things. Like, what if instead, it, like if we're going to vote, which I think is an important thing for us to do, what if, we're, what, what if one of the things that we decided we're going to vote for, and one of the qualities, were just the fruits of the Spirit? 
What if we're like, we're going to vote for the person who, who displays the fruit in their lives, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What if we let those guide us? Wouldn't that be an interesting thought? Right? Because when we align ourselves with power, we, we wind up sacrificing all sorts of really good things. That's why Jesus says, worship God. Serve him only, period. So here's the deal. How do we get the spiritual power that Jesus got to like overcome the temptation to do these things? Like, Where do we get the spiritual strength of Jesus? Where does that come from? How do we live into this? Well, I'll tell you this. There's no shortcut. There's no shortcut to it at all. There's no cheating the system here. Jesus didn't spend one day fasting in the desert. He spent 40 days. Anybody want to fast for 40 days in the desert? Does that seem like a really long time to anybody else here? This is a really long time. So how do we do it? There's this guy named Dallas Willard. He's gone now. But he's, he spent most of his life writing about this sort of stuff. Uh, and in several different books, in several different places, in several different ways, he sort of says the same thing. And it goes a little bit like this. Stop trying to be like Jesus. And you're like, what? Like, I thought that was the point, right? We want to be like Jesus. That's... So it doesn't sound right, but what he's getting at is this. If you want to keep all of Jesus' commands, don't try to keep his commands. Again, that doesn't sound right. He says, if you want to keep all of Jesus' commands, don't try to keep all of Jesus' commands. He says, Become the kind of person who regularly and routinely keeps Jesus' commands. Do you, you hear the nuance there? You catch the difference there. Don't be like Jesus. We'll fail miserably. Become the kind of person who regularly and routinely does the things that Jesus did. So there's a difference between trying and training. Are you with me? Train to be like Jesus. There's a difference between trying and training. How, do we have anybody here who could go out tomorrow and run a marathon? Anyone? We got one. I was wondering if you were going to be like, yeah, I can. I don't want to be like the guy, but yeah. So Aaron can do it. Only one. You're like Jesus, man. You're like, you made it. And the rest of us are trying to catch up. So here's the deal. And Aaron, if I'm wrong on this, correct me. But if any of the rest of us are going to run a marathon, what do we have to do? We have to train. And we have to start by, by running like three miles. Some of us are like, no way. Maybe a mile. <laughs> Maybe a half mile. So we'll... <laughs> give you way too much credit here. Oh, really honest. I like that. So we, you start small, right? You start with like three miles, then you work your way up to five miles, then you work your way up to eight miles, then you work your way up to 12, or I don't know, there's, there's programs you can get into, but the point is you work up to it, right? And then you get yourself up to the point where you can, you can run like 20 miles, and then you stop, and you go run your marathon, because if you train your body to be able to run, and your mind, by the way, if you trained your body and your mind, your whole being to be able to run 20 miles, 
when you come to the test of running a marathon, you can do it. If you can run 20, you can run 26.2 miles. Are you with me? So it's this, it's this process by which we train to be like Jesus. So when the point comes, oh, we're ready. We can do it. So now is the season. It's the beginning of the season of Lent. Start training. It's, it's never too late to start. Start training. Be intentional about it. Do some self-examination. Start training to be like Jesus. Maybe, maybe you'll pick up a spiritual discipline and try it for a while. Guess what? You can just Google spiritual disciplines and learn a ton. We have more information at our fingertips than ever before. You don't need an expert, <laughs> expert like me telling you how to do it. Like you can go learn for yourself. You can do this. I promise you, you can. Just Google spiritual disciplines and see what you come up with. You might need to buy a book and read, uh, but that's okay. Is it important to you? Try something. Try a spiritual discipline. Maybe you'll commit to a regular time of prayer or maybe just a regular time of silence and solitude. Maybe you'll pick up one of the stories about Jesus and you'll decide, you know what? I'm gonna read through this like five different times from now until Holy Week. I'm just gonna read through. Take Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It doesn't matter. Take one of them and just read it. Don't just sit and read a little bit of it, which can be helpful, Read the whole thing. Or take two days or three days to read one of the whole stories. You get like the overarching story and all of a sudden all kinds of different things begin to make way more sense to you. Read it like it's a mini novel or a short story. Just commit yourself to that. Is that a big deal? Will that take you a lot of effort? No, it won't, will it? Right? Or maybe you'll just read a book about the Bible. <laughs> that could be good for you too. Just read a book about the Bible and you can learn all sorts of things so that when you go back to the Bible, you have a better understanding of what it is you're reading and what it is you're doing. Maybe you'll commit to yourself, you'll, submit, you'll commit to coming here every Sunday, week after week after week, between now and Easter. You're like, I'm not gonna miss a Sunday because real embodied worship next to other people is a really important thing and it will form me in ways that I'm not even aware of. Maybe you'll commit to that. Maybe you'll find a place to serve. Maybe you'll sign up for the fix-it team. Maybe you'll decide to give up something for Lent and you'll decide to sit and rest in your hunger. Maybe you're one of those people who've, who've you've got this thing in your life and you keep bumping up against it and you try to break through, but you can't break through. And you've talked to your friends about it. You've talked to your spouse about it. You've talked to your kids about it. You've talked to your parents about it. You've Googled how to get through this and you can't just get it on your own. So maybe you ought to think about the spiritual discipline of going to see a therapist. That can be good for you too. So it's not too late. It's not too late to start. Look, if you messed up with your New Year's resolution, who cares? It's the season of Lent. Now is a, is a time for a new beginning. It's a, time for a, it's a time for a second wind. Lean into it. Examine. Take some steps. It's not too late. Begin training, even if it's a half mile Begin training to be like Jesus. See what happens. Let's pray. God, thank you for, for the ways in which you speak to us through your word. Through reminding us that, that you are with us always. Um, for giving us really small things that turn out to be really big things. 
And God, we, we want to be dazzled, but we're reminded that you show up in the mundane, in the ordinary, if we're, if we're paying attention. And so we, we come to this table and we recognize that this table is one of those simple things where you make yourself known. And we are reminded that, that, that this meal, this Eucharist, uh, is, a, is a feast of, of remembrance, communion, and hope. And that we come together, we remember that, that Jesus gave up heaven and became one of us and gave himself up on the cross. We, we remember that this is also a meal about communion, that wherever we gather together, even if it's just in a, in a small little place like this, that you show up and you show off and you do speak and you do meet us and you do forgive us and you do heal us and you do make us new. And we come in hope, hope that one day all of the pain and the sorrow and the struggles that we go through today will be a thing of the past and, and you'll make all things new again. We praise and bless you, O oh God, for the precious gift of this mighty Savior, the eternal word made flesh for us and our salvation. And God, come Holy Spirit, we pray that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless might be to us the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. Jesus, on the same night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks for it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this and remember me. In the same manner also, after they had eaten, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so and remember me. The gifts of God for the people of God come for all things are now ready. For those